Alrighty, thank you guys for being here. Good morning. How is everyone? Um, just a reminder, next, I'm pretty sure next, yeah, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, so feel free to grab some flyers to remind yourself, remind others. Uh, we'll just be in the gym having lunch if anybody wants to hang around uh, to bring your, own, bring your own lunch and get to know people. Um, that'll be next Sunday. So, uh, sorry, I sent an email out late yesterday. I uh, don't know if anybody got it. I got it. All right. So today we're going to be looking at the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision and the Old Covenant together mm -hmm. and how they relate. So a uh, quick recap, what were the two promises of the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision that we looked at a couple weeks ago? Anybody remember? I think somebody back there, what was it? Okay, the, the land and the, and the people, the, the nation. So that was first Abrahamic promise. The seed was the second. And what was that? The seed was the second. What, what seed? Uh, so she talked about seed, right? The, the nation. Jesus. They didn't know the Jesus seed. Would be coming. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the, the, sing, the, the seed of the woman, the single offspring, the single seed, and then the plural seed, the nation uh, and the land nation and land and Jesus. Uh, so today we'll be looking at primarily that first promise to the plural offspring and the nation and the, the, and the land of Canaan and how that was fulfilled. Um, and then the, what was the other question? Um, in the Old Covenant, we looked at it last week, what did God promise in the Old Covenant? The land, okay? And uh, what about life in the land? Did he make any promises about what life might be like in the land? Milk and honey. Milk and honey. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, prosperity, right? Blessing. Uh, based on upon what? Was there a condition? Was this unconditional? <laughs> Everything conditional. What was the condition? Obedience. Obedience to the law, Mosaic Covenant, right? And so we looked at how they had um, the Ten Commandments and then they had all these other laws as well, including the sacrificial system. All right. And so what do you see as, uh, just looking at those two covenants, the covenant of circumcision and the old covenant, uh, what do you see as an area of overlap between the two of them? Are they two completely different covenants? related to two completely different people about different things, or is there an area of overlap between them? God, God with his people. Which people? His people. Okay. And how is that, <laughs> how is that um, similar? How does that overlap with, it, with the covenant of circumcision? Well, Were they the same promises? Were they different promises? Okay, circumcision had to do with identity. That's who they were. Okay, that's who, who was? The Jewish people. The Jewish people, okay, so, and, and which covenant were they related to? Which? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. Abrahamic, and what else? 
the old the old covenant. Okay, so do the do the parties overlap? Is the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision made with the same people that the old covenant is made with? Yeah. So there's overlap there, right? Abrahamic covenant of circumcision is made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their offspring. Who was the old covenant made with? The the nation of Jacob, which was renamed to Israel. So the, um, the parties are the same, right, between the two covenants. The Abrahamic covenant promised that those people would receive the land of Canaan, right? And what did the old covenant promise about that land? That they would inherit the land if they obeyed, right? So it's the same, it's, they're both promising the same land, so it's made with the same people about the same thing. All right, so there's a lot of overlap between these two. So what we're going to dive in today is how does then that, that, how do they relate to each other? If they're made with the same people, promise the same thing, how does that work exactly? So the old Mosaic Sinai covenant was made with the members of the covenant of circumcision, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel. Genesis 17, 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I forgot to pray when we started. Let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would be with us today, that you would send your spirit upon us to bless our time here together studying your word. We ask that you would uh, guide my words and thoughts, um, help me to, to teach accurately your word, and, and um, uh, bless your word to our hearts today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis 28, 12. So this, uh, this same promise was repeated to Isaac and then again to Jacob. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on top of it, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then we get to Exodus 19. And who is this covenant made with? The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Right, so the purpose here is to see that these are the same people. These two covenants are made with the same, uh, the same people. The old Mosaic covenant was an addendum to the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision elaborating the conditions upon which any of Abraham's descendants 
would possess and retain the promised land. Does anybody know what an addendum is? An addition to a contract, right? So it doesn't change the terms of the original contract, right? Because that would violate the contract. But it's an addendum that further elaborates or specifies something about the agreement, right? And so that's how this old Mosaic covenant relates to the covenant of circumcision. It's elaborating on something specific about that, not changing the terms, right? Because Paul talks about in Galatians 3, that would. If you change the terms, then that, that uh, nullifies the covenant. You can't do that. It would violate the covenant. So nothing that we're looking at here is, is contrary to or a violation of the original promise to Abraham. It's implicit in that promise to Abraham. But these conditions elaborate. There's a lot of conflict between an unconditional covenant and a conditional addendum. Yeah. So that's why we raised the question when we looked at the covenant of circumcision. Is it unconditional or not? Um, and we saw that there's a whole lot of conditions actually in there. It wasn't quite black and white that it's simply an unconditional covenant. Um, there was, uh, in Genesis 17, right, one of the conditions was circumcision. Right? If you weren't circumcised, you'd be cut off from the covenant of circumcision. That's definitely conditional. Um, we also looked at various things that, that Abraham had to do, and, and God says at the end in Genesis 22, you know, because you have done all these things, I will, I will uh, fulfill this covenant with you. Um, so there's, uh, there was a lot of sense in which we saw even originally in Genesis 12 through 22 that there, there were conditions related there. But there was this interesting tension, right, between God committing to doing something like the birth of Isaac. That was miraculous apart from Abraham's doing. And yet, you raise a great point. There, there seems to be this, this tension here. So let's dig in here and see if, see if we get any clarity. And definitely raise your hand and shout out and push back if, if anything jumps out to you and is not making sense. And we'll get into it. So Jeremiah 11 verse 3 says, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what covenant is that referring to? Mosaic, Mosaic, right? From the iron furnace saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you so that you shall be my people and I will be your God. Right? That was the promise made to Abraham. And here he's saying, you must obey this Mosaic covenant so that you shall be my people and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Deuteronomy 4.1 says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Okay, This land that the God of your fathers uh, is giving you, that he promised to your fathers, in order to go in and take possession of it, you need to obey these laws and the statutes of the Old Covenant. <coughs> Deuteronomy 6.3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Uh, in a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies, and his statutes, which he has commanded you. 
and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord promised. Deuteronomy 7:11 says, You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. That's pretty explicit. Deuteronomy 8.1, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord, that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep these commandments or not. Deuteronomy 9.22, At Taborah also, and at Massa, and at uh, Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Right? So they were not meeting this condition. So they, um, we'll see the consequence of that in a little bit. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Right? Uh, overthrowing these nations was contingent upon their obedience. Deuteronomy 29, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. So that's the old covenant. That he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So scripture sees this old Mosaic covenant as a fulfillment as the outworking of the covenant of circumcision. This is the means by which the promise is fulfilled that God will be their God. Any questions on that section before we move on? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that steadfast love has very covenantal connotations. Um, I don't know if it, yeah. Um, but yes, that is, that is a good point there. Um, Abraham's descendants would dwell in the promised land indefinitely, forever, as long as they obeyed the Mosaic Covenant. The Lord said to Abraham, uh, to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Exodus 32:13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, 
to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Deuteronomy 5, 28, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of his people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me, to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Be careful, Deuteronomy 12, 28, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of, your, of the Lord your God. And Leviticus 26, 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. So there's, there's a lot there. We'll unpack it as we go forward this week and in coming weeks. Um, this idea of what seems like this unconditional, everlasting, forever promise seems to be conditional, right? Even the forever aspect. You will have this land uh, if you obey. And your children will enjoy this land forever if they obey. And if they don't, you're going to be kicked out of the land. So that's something to keep in mind there with the forever language. The first generation broke the Mosaic Covenant as soon as it was established and continually. So now we face a, a conundrum. So this was part of the homework this week was reading Exodus 32. So what happened when God gave the Ten Commandments and the rest of the covenant to Moses up on Mount Sinai. What happened immediately after that? They built a golden calf. Was that what God commanded them to do? No. No. Kind of the opposite. It was kind of the opposite. Yeah. Uh, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get the memo. Um, so, according to the terms of the Old Covenant, was that a fulfillment of the Old Covenant or a violation, a breaking of the Old Covenant? Violation. violation. What did God say he would do if they broke the Old Covenant? What's that? He wanted to kill them all. He wanted to kill them all because that's what the Old Covenant said. If you disobey and break this covenant, these are the curses. You're going to be destroyed. So upon the terms of the Old Covenant, God was very, very angry with them. What happened next? Moses interceded. What did Moses plead with God? How did he intercede? If his people, uh, because the Egyptians and the other nations will say, there is the name of the Lord actually on the line. <coughs> what they will say, you are not able to bring the people when you promised. Okay, so she said, uh, he pleaded the name of the Lord uh, because the Egyptians and the other nations would look at this and say, this God of the Israelites couldn't, couldn't do what he said. He couldn't fulfill his promise. He couldn't bring them into the land. So that's what, uh, that's what Moses says. He appeals to God 
specifically to look back at what he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, Let's see. So they have turned aside quickly, out of my way, commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed on it. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Um, and then Deuteronomy 1 recounts that as well. Uh, yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And then Deuteronomy 9.22 elaborates on that. Um, then you rebelled again against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Right, so in these passages, Moses is recounting what happened with the golden calf and then what happened again and again and again throughout uh, that generation. So God appeal, or sorry, Moses appealed to God based on his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what was God's response to that? Them. What's that? I forgive them. He forgives them. I'm trying to remember the exact language. He withheld his wrath, right? So there was some punishment. Um, they did they did kill some of them, but God relented and did not destroy all of them, right? Okay. So, um, what ended up happening ultimately to that first generation, right? He spared them. He didn't kill them all off right there at the bottom of Mount Sinai when they made the golden calf. But as Moses points out, they continued to disobey. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? Until that generation passed. Why? Yeah, so they didn't believe that God could overcome uh, the enemies in the land, and so they disobeyed. When God said, go up, take the land, I'll give it to you, they disobeyed and they said no. And then throughout that time, they kept disobeying, kept disobeying. And um, so remember the verse we read just a few minutes ago. Where, uh, I can't remember which one it was, to, uh, God said he was going to be testing them. It was uh, somewhere on page two, but he said he's going to be testing them to see if they would obey. And that first generation failed that test. They disobeyed. And so God poured out his vengeance upon that generation by killing them in the wilderness. Numbers 14 verse 21 said, But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice. Right, so God was putting them to the test, and they failed the test and tried to put God to the test instead. 
they have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and all of your number, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Right, so this is pretty clear here. He says, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. So, did God unconditionally promise to give this generation the land of Canaan? Not unconditionally. Okay. Did God specify which generation would necessarily inherit the land when he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. Right? It was an indeterminate, your offspring will inherit the land. And it was conditional. Okay, Deuteronomy uh, 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. And Psalm 95, 8 looks back on this and says, Do not harden your hearts as at uh, Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. However, he did not blot out all of Abraham's descendants because his promise to Abraham had not yet been fulfilled. So going back to Moses here, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Right, so Moses reminded him, God, you have not fulfilled this promise. So even though the uh, old covenant was conditional, they broke the old covenant, and according to the terms of the Old Covenant, they would be destroyed. The Abrahamic Covenant delayed, uh, it buffered, it um, held back the full curse of the Old Covenant. The first generation experienced it, but the entire nation was not wiped out because God had not yet fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Numbers 14 is a similar uh, recounting of that, saying the Egyptians will, will look at this and say that you couldn't do what you promised. And then, uh, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, right? There's this long-suffering patience of God towards these people. 
they haven't been obedient the whole time, but there's this long-suffering patience towards them because of his promise to Abraham. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. And then Deuteronomy 9, 4 says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Right? So Moses is reminding them here, if this was based completely on your righteousness, you guys would have never entered the land. You would be wiped out in the wilderness. Now, therefore, that, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because, sorry, know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through, their great, through your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So is that clear so far? So God's promise to Abraham held back the full curse of the law. This is an important point for how these two covenants relate. Genesis 15, 9. So going back to the vision when, when God made his covenant with Abraham, and Abraham said, how should I know? And God put him to sleep and gave him the vision of the, of the covenant ceremony. God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought the, him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's a really odd detail to recount. As you're reading through the original Genesis 15, it just kind of sticks out there like, okay, he chased away some birds, big deal. Why is this recorded in scripture? Well, uh, let's see what uh, the rest of scripture has to say about that idea of the birds of prey. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15 says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food 
for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. This is the idea of wrath and curse being poured out on a people, that their carcasses will be picked at by birds of prey. And God warns, there will be a time, if you disobey me, that there will be none to frighten away this curse. Jeremiah 7.30, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. This is much later in Israel's history. Um, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air, and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Right? So the point here is that uh, this concept of birds coming and eating their bodies is a, is a symbol, uh, an analogy metaphor, for the full covenant curses being poured out. And when those covenant curses are fully poured out, there's going to be nobody to st nothing to stop them. There's going to be no one to frighten away these birds. But in Genesis 15, there was somebody there to frighten away the birds. As the birds came, Abram chased them away. This is kind of how scripture works sometimes. It's not always explicit, right? It gives us pictures and metaphors and hints, and we've got to try to put them together. I think the best way to understand what's going on with Abram driving away these, these birds of prey is what we've been looking at here. It's symbolic for the promise that God makes to Abraham withholds this full curse of the Old Covenant from being poured out upon Israel. Right? This promise that God made to Abram is chasing away the birds, the full covenant curse. And so Israel is not totally consumed, totally wiped out. He kills the first generation, but he spares their children. Right? And that's the, that he spares their children because the birds are chased away. They don't come and kill the children, basically. Because God's promise had not yet been fulfilled. So Psalm 106, verse 6, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. But they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, right? That's what you said. For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Many times he delivered them, but they were, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So that next generation was circumcised and obeyed Mosaic law and thus entered the land under Joshua's leadership. I um, forgot to put the verse in here that talks about them being circumcised. It's in Joshua, but their parents had neglected to circumcise them. Right? The rebellious generation in the wilderness didn't circumcise their children. And we looked back at the covenant of circumcision, how that was a very important condition. Right? If they weren't circumcised, they would be cut off. And how it symbolized an oath of loyalty 
to obey God according to the terms of Mosaic law. Right, so this was very, very important for this new generation in the wilderness to be circumcised. It's a sign of their dedication and oath of loyalty to obey God according to Mosaic law. So Numbers 14, verse 23, God says, None of them, th that first generation, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who, said, um, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Right, so does anybody know what it's referring to there with Caleb? The two spies? Yeah. <coughs> that were being good report and said, let's go, the Lord is going to do with us. Okay, so they were uh, spies <coughs> that went into the land. They came back, they gave a good report. The, uh, the other spies there, or the other uh, people of Israel said, these people are too big. They're giants. We can't face them. And they were fearful. They didn't believe God. And this is what we, we heard earlier. This is another instance of their rebellion. And that's why God swore you guys aren't going in. You, you don't trust me. You're not obeying. Except Caleb said, no, no, no. We need to go in. We need to trust. We need to go in. He was the only one. And so he was spared. Right? By his obedience, he was spared. And he and Joshua ended up leading that generation into the promised land. Because they were obedient. Because they believed that God would do what he said. And they put one foot in front of the other. And they went forward. And he did, they did what he commanded. Deuteronomy 1.34, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account. This is Moses talking. And said, You, Moses, shall not go in there. Joshua the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who, said, uh, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Well, it's, it's a reference kind of to what we, what we talked about in the first week. Um, the idea is that's something you grow in as you mature you become wise and understanding and begin to discern good from evil. So there's other passages, I think, in Ecclesiastes and, and elsewhere that talk about that. Just when you're young, you're a little more naive and, and you don't quite understand right and wrong as you should and you, you grow in that. But is that where then like the, I feel like some people can misinterpret that and be like, oh, so children aren't really sinning or like they can't be held responsible for their sin at that age. Right. Right. Yeah, they, um, it's, it's not saying that um, they're not accountable. It's not saying that they don't ultimately know in their heart. They have a conscience. They do know. You, even in young children, you know, they, they have this sense of they, that they're supposed to obey their parents. Um, but at the same time, it, it is something that we grow in. Wasn't it also the fact that if their parents didn't circumcise them, they weren't raising them? Yeah. Yeah, they were not training them in the word of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, 
And Joshua 23, verse 1 says, A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and, its, and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So this is after they've crossed the Jordan, come into the land, fought their enemies. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside uh, from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow, bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. Right? So that's an important point. Joshua is saying that you have been faithful to the Lord to this day. He's warning them, don't, don't stop now, continue. After I die, continue. But unlike their parents' generation, this generation was faithful. They did cling to the Lord. They did obey. They did not worship idols. And therefore, they were brought into the land. So scripture refers to the Mosaic Sinai Covenant as the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, it refers to it as the Old Covenant. However, the Old Covenant is inclusive of the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision to the degree that the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision overlaps with the Mosaic covenant. What's one area where they do not overlap? What's that? Well, aside from us, just looking at the covenant of circumcision, was there anything in the covenant of circumcision that we don't see in the old covenant? How about that second promise? Right? What was the second promise in the covenant of circumcision? Right? The seed of Christ. <coughs> so the old... Yeah. So this is, this is, we don't see that throughout the Old Covenant. This promised seed of the woman who will bless the nations will only be born and will only bless the nations if you obey, uh, obey my law, obey Mosaic law. All right, we don't see that. So the Old Covenant, when uh, Hebrews talks about it, it talks about the covenant that I made with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It doesn't mean, therefore, that it's excluding everything that happened before that with Abraham. Right? It's, it's inclusive of those two. So circumcision in the New Testament is associated with the Old Covenant, yet it was given in Genesis 17. Right? It's because these overlap and it's an, and it's an, uh, an addendum. Uh, and so the Old Covenant comes to encompass basically all of that old, old stuff that, that has passed away, including circumcision. That, that final part of what he promised to Abraham, or to Adam and 
Yeah, so the, the comment here was uh, even the, the promise uh, that God made to uh, Adam in Genesis 3 and, and throughout all of this time, even till today, we're still looking forward to that, that seed of the woman coming and, and um, fully crushing Satan under his feet. Um, so we kind of looked in, in the second week at that concept of the already not yet. That Christ has come, he has defeated Satan. Uh, but he has not come yet to establish his kingdom on earth as it will be in the new heavens and new earth. So there is a, there's an already not yet sense. He has defeated Satan. He has overcome him. He has freed us. He has justified us. He has brought us into his kingdom. And yet his kingdom is, is not fully consummated. It's not fully brought to earth. So in that sense, we are aware of um, the, the seed of the woman has come. We look back to that. These guys look forward to it. We look back. But we are waiting for that full um, realization of it, the full implementation, the full outworking of it, yeah. Um, and once again, I put, uh, put too much in here, so I'm going to be a little bit selective probably, and then t uh, this, this week you might have to read some more. Um, the fulfillment of the first Abrahamic promise. The first Abrahamic promise began to be fulfilled in Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Right. During those uh, many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery uh, came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with the Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Right. So they're in Egypt. He brings them out of Egypt because he promised to Abraham that he would do that. So their whole exodus was, was an outworking, the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant of circumcision. Um, and I'll skip these, uh, these verses here. They're all basically saying the same thing. Psalm 105, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, Abraham his servant, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Its fulfillment was conditioned upon the people's obedience to the law. All right, that's what we looked at um, the beginning of the hour here. It was fulfilled when Israel divided the land of Canaan among their tribes as their inheritance, though they had not yet driven out all of the inhabitants. Exodus 23:29 says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. And then Joshua comes and leads them across the Jordan. Uh, right? They take Jericho, they take all these cities, uh, they conquer their enemies, and Joshua at the end says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Right? He was still going to continue driving out some of the remaining inhabitants after this point. But scripture says that God fulfilled his promise. He gave them the land. Acts 13, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. 
and then, uh, but there still were some remaining enemies to conquer and subdue. Um, at this point, Judah and Israel were like the dust of the earth, as numerous as the stars of heaven and as many as the, as the sand by the sea. You can look up all those verse references there. Um, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. And then uh, in Solomon's day, he says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And Hebrews 11 recounts this and says, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All right, so this promise that God made that he would multiply Abraham's offspring uh, was, was fulfilled in the nation of Israel. God was the God of the nation of Israel by dwelling in their midst, sitting as an earthly king upon his throne in the tabernacle and temple. He established laws, judged cases, and led them in battle. He was not the God of Gentiles in this manner. Israel alone was a theocracy. And you can look up those verses later. Uh, the point there is that this is a, a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he will be a God to him and to his offspring after him. Now, God progressively drove out the remaining inhabitants according to Israel's obedience to the law first through the leadership of various judges, then King Saul, then King David, a man after God's own heart. All right, so we've, we've heard this in, in sermons as we've gone through the book of Judges and through 1 Samuel, right? There's disobedience, their enemies grow and take control over them, the Philistines, etc. And then God raises up a savior, uh, a judge to come, Samson and, and various other ones, uh, to defeat the enemies, to conquer them. Uh, but it's this, it's this back and forth, this back and forth, right? And then Saul is raised up as a king to lead them to do this, and Saul disobeys, and he can't conquer the enemies until he raises up David, a man after his own heart who does obey, and ultimately conquers all of their enemies. Uh, the promise was realized to the fullest when Israel's enemies were defeated by David, and God dwelt in their midst in Solomon's temple, right? This, had, this was what they were working towards. Once they had rest in the land and had possessed the land, um, then God would choose the place where he would dwell, in Jerusalem, um, and uh, uh, build a temple for him to dwell there. And so this was, was the pinnacle of the fulfillment of that first promise. Genesis 15, 18 said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, so the river of Egypt is down in the south, before the wilderness, uh, Sinai Peninsula, um, to the great river, the river Euphrates, that's all the way up in the north. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And then in Solomon's day, 1 Kings 4.20 says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. Right? That border of Egypt is the, the river of Egypt that Genesis 15 was referring to. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day 
uh, was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifshah to Gaza, and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Right, scripture is saying that this is a fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. He brought them into the land. He gave them the land he promised. He gave them rest from their enemies. And this was, was the height of, of Israel's um, history. This was the, the great King Solomon that everybody flocked to. Right? They built the temple. They built the palace and, and all of these uh, wonderful things. So this is a good question. So the ridge river of Egypt, was that the Nile or not? So that's, that's a good question. Scripture, so sometimes it's hard because we don't always know what every city, what every geographic reference refers to, right? Because names have changed over thousands of years. So it's not always exactly clear. It refers to the southern border as the river of Egypt. So when we think of that, we think, well, the Nile is a pretty big river. It's a river in Egypt. It's it might be the river of Egypt that it's talking about here. The Suez Canal was not in that time. The Suez Canal, so where's that at? Was not in that time, so the next river would be the... So, it, uh, so the next river down would be uh, the Nile. So a couple of points here. So if it was the Nile River that their, um, their land would extend to, then their land would include, that the people that they would conquer would include the Egyptians. Right? Because if they're going all the way down to the Nile, that's, that's Egyptian land. In the promise to Abraham, he doesn't mention that he's going to give them the land of the Egyptians. Right? He says the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Prizites, the Rephaim, the Amrites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he doesn't say he's going to give them the land of the Egyptians. The other point is, um, and if you look in the back of your Bibles, some of you might have it, a lot of times there's maps in the back. Um, you can usually find one. What's that? Is that a paper Bible? As opposed to what? <laughs> Papyrus? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm old school. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, where's another one? Yeah, it's hard to see. Um, this is the land of Canaan up here. It's kind of Egypt here, Nile's right here. So what's in between Canaan and, and the Nile here? Can you guys see that at all? This peninsula? This is the Sinai Peninsula. This is the wilderness that they wandered in for 40 years. Was the wilderness the promised land? The wilderness was not the promised land. So if the border extended all the way to the Nile River, then the wilderness would be the promised land. But it wasn't. During that time, Egypt extended all the way through here up to about here. And there's a, a river right here on the border of where Egypt was. It's called the Wadi El Arish. And that is, um, that's what the uh, scripture refers to there as the river of Egypt. 
So other places it refers to as the brook of Egypt. And it consistently says that uh, that river of Egypt, that brook of Egypt, it says you come from the, um, uh, the what is it called, the salt sea, which we call the Dead Sea. Right in uh, Numbers, Numbers 34, it refers to it as the Dead Sea. And it says basically you come from, um, from the Dead Sea down here at the bottom, more or less over to the, the river of Egypt, which is right here. It's a kind of rough approximation. So uh, it's a good question. I don't think that the, um, the river of Egypt refers to the Nile. I think it's this other river. Yes. Yeah, there were some others. Um, God was saying that it's going to give them the land after the Euphrates River. Yep, so this is a good point. Ask, you know. Yes. So he's saying, uh, my objection was, well, he didn't say he's going to give them the land of Egyptians. And he's saying, well, but he also gave them the land up to the Euphrates, which includes other nations that he didn't mention. So that's a good point. That's a good point. I think the geography still, um, I don't think it does refer to the Nile. I think because the Bible does name the Nile, right? In earlier in Exodus, it does refer to it as the Nile. But when it's talking about the borders, it never says the Nile. It says the river of Egypt. So I think it's a different river. Um, let's see here. And then uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. So this is at the dedication of the temple. Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And then skipping ahead much later um, in their history, Nehemiah says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring. The land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. All right, so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, Scripture says that that promise that God made to Abraham, that first promise, that he would multiply his offspring and he would give them the land of Canaan, it says that that was fulfilled completely in the time of Solomon. That's all I got. Any questions, comments, thoughts, discussion, dis uh, disagreement, pushback, anything? This might be a rabbit hole, but part of this goes into like corporate sin, corporate punishment, corporate confession. And I feel like I don't hear that talked about a lot in today's day and age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the question was um, the idea of corporate sin, corporate punishment, corporate guilt, corporate confession. Um, we see that in the Old Covenant. And the question was, we don't hear a lot about that today. Why? Um, I think there's a few different reasons. One is because uh, the Old Covenant was a national covenant made corporately with, with a people. 
um, giving them the land. They had clear borders, clearly defined who they were. They were the Abraham of, uh, sorry, the offspring of Abraham. They were marked physically by circumcision, uh, and this was a national covenant made with them. Right? The new covenant today is not a national covenant. Right? It's not made with nations. It's made with uh, individuals who are united to Christ. So in that sense, very, very different terms. Um, but the other aspect of that is also just over the last several hundred years, um, culturally we've undergone a big shift in our thinking about life in terms of corporate solidarity. Um, that's, that's very much has to do with America and the concept of America and its effect not only on America but the rest of the world as well. Um, it was philosophically a shift to a much more individual way of thinking, uh, a much less corporate way. And that's a great discussion to have, which one is right, which one is biblical, is there a biblical one, is it just wisdom, all of that. But, but I think both of those factors would play into um, why we don't hear or see as much about it today, that we're not necessarily in a covenant relationship with God corporately as, as a nation or, or a group of people, but it's through union with Christ, and then just developments in, in culture and things like that. Yeah, I get the covenant part and how that is separate, but I know there are some churches that practice like corporate confession. Yeah, yeah, so uh, in that sense, yeah, so in that sense, as, as the body of Christ gathering together, uh, some churches, um, sometimes they're referred to as high churches or different, different liturgies, um, that they will together, as a congregation, confess their sin. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's perfectly consistent with, with the New Covenant. You know, there's, uh, we are all individuals who have confessed faith in Christ, confessed our union with Christ, and we're coming together to proclaim that and confess that together. Um, um, yeah, and that's, there's different reasons why different churches do and don't do that, but, but yeah. There is no, like, command to do that? Um, it, it would be implicit if it is, like, you know, it, it could be interpreted differently. It's, it's not necessarily saying every time you come together you need to formally recite this prepared confession, but there's this sense in which, you know, we confess our sins to one another, we confess our sins to God, we pray corporately together, and so I, th I think that's you know, can be implied in there. What's that? Oh, read for next time. Um, we're going to look at the Davidic covenant. So, Second Samuel uh, seven. Um, First Kings four again, and 1 Kings 8. I I'll probably throw in a couple. I'll try to email you guys earlier this time. But uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, it uh, week got away from me. Um, but start with, yeah, 2 Samuel 7 and uh, 1 Kings 4 and 8. So we will then look at It'll be interesting. What, what is this covenant that God made with David? And then how does it relate to everything we talked about today? This fulfillment of the first Abrahamic promise, this conditionality of the old covenant. Right? So they are in the land now. God has fulfilled his promise. Now what does that do in terms of this conditionality? 
All right. Anything else? I'm going to throw this idea out there just for the sake of hearing your opinion. The troublemaker wants to throw yeah, something out uh, for the sake uh, of discussion. Without getting like super, making like these passages prescriptive, mm -hmm. it does seem like we modern Christians, especially parents, can learn something from God by the multi-generational aspects. Yeah. Like there seems to be like God makes broad promises like he does to us. But then he's doing this addendum with each generation, right? And at least he's like modeling this. And he's making them like saying, hey, this applies to you too. You don't just get like a free pass, but you have to do this. The, the conditions apply to you. And I'm wondering, is there any aspect of that that, you know, <coughs> mirrors or models of something for us as we? multi-generational? Yeah, so the question was, um, God seems to be dealing with people here um, intergenerationally. He's, uh, he, you mentioned uh, an addendum, kind of, I think you said renewing the covenant, or I can't remember the language you used, with each generation. Um, that, that this is generally how God works. Is this something that we can learn from and apply to us today? Um, so, Thanks for asking this right at the end of, uh, <laughs> we got a few seconds to drill it. So this is, um, it's a very good question. Uh, I would start with, first of all, God is dealing with the generations uh, of Israel in this way because the covenant that he made with Abraham was specifically about his generational offspring. And so, and it's not, um, it's not so much, it wasn't his immediate offspring that this covenant was made with. It was his offspring down through the generations. And so this, um, the generation that was circumcised in the wilderness, they were circumcised not because of who their parents were, <laughs> but because of who their great, 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 great grandparents were. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that gives them um, right and title and obligation to circumcision and the covenant relationship that that entails. Um, so it's, it's tied back to this covenant had Abraham, not so much their, their immediate parents. And, um, and so it's made with them corporately in that sense. And in that way, it's different from, from the new covenant, how it's made, <laughs> right? It's not made with, with um, you know, I'm not, in this sense, I'm not the federal head of the covenant head of the new covenant and my children are, are under me the way Abraham was in the covenant of circumcision. Um, so the covenantal dynamic there between us and our children is different than it was for Abraham and his offspring throughout their generations. Um, so covenantally, there's a different dynamic there. But is there anything we can observe and learn from that? Um, absolutely, in terms of, there's a lot of stuff in Deuteronomy 6 and elsewhere about raising your children. Um, teaching them the commandments of the Lord, teaching them the, the knowledge of the Lord and the revealed things of the Lord, um, teaching them and training them in the way that they should go, um, evangelizing them. Absolutely, I think a ton to learn there. I wouldn't say that we learn from the Old Covenant that, we, that God would renew His covenant necessarily generationally. Um, I think that's a, it's, the salvation is, is individual, not um, familial, though 
the parents have a huge role to play in that, in raising our children and teaching and, and evangelizing our children. Um, so I'm trying to say yes and no. Yeah, so we, I think we do have a lot to learn, um, especially in our culture today. We're um, very individualized and, and we can have a tendency to kind of uh, shirk that responsibility off on others and, and whatnot. I think as parents we have a great role there. But I think we also, the, the New Testament we'll get to later in the class, also places a, um, a big distinction in terms of that genealogical principle when we get to the New Covenant. Um, not through, who have been born again, not through flesh and blood, um, but through my spirit, something along those lines in John. Um, and a lot of other passages there that the, the genealogical principle is specifically called out as, as having come to an end. So um, kind of a lot there, but that's in four minutes, that's kind of where I'm at. All right, sounds good. Thank you guys. And don't forget next week, if you want to come hang out for a while.